We are in the middle of a series called Jesus in Between. And what we've been saying in this series is this, that oftentimes we will see Jesus at Christmas, Jesus at Easter. So we see the birth and death and resurrection of Jesus, and we just stop there. And so that's the picture of Jesus we have. And in this series, we want to say, what if we looked in between those two significant events to get a complete picture of Jesus? Because when we don't get a complete picture of Jesus, we have a misunderstanding of who he is and what he's all about. I was an RA in college my final semester there, and so on my floor was 40 guys, and basically I was to assist them getting adjusted to the college life. And one guy uh, on a particular day came up to me, and he was a practicing Buddhist, and he knew that I was a Christian. He said this, hey, I've read a book about Jesus, the, the childhood of Jesus. You need to read it. There's some interesting things in there. And he started telling me all the different things that were written about Jesus, and it didn't line up with the character of who God is and what he's about. He had a misconceived idea based off of different resources or different internet uh, articles that he had read. And we can enter into this Jesus thing with that kind of picture. So we're going through this series and saying, who is Jesus? What is, what is he all about? The first week, this is what we said. We said that Jesus... He is a paradox. He is fully man and fully God. 100% man, 100% God, which doesn't make sense. It's fun to talk to students about that because they're like, what in the world is going on, right? 100% man, 100% God came down and he lived a life just like you and me, but being God in all of that. The second week, we looked at the temptation of Jesus. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan. And so we see in that that Jesus empathizes with our weaknesses. He empathizes with us because he was tempted like us, yet has the authority to say, get away from me, Satan, right? To defeat Satan and to defeat temptation. And the third week, last week, we looked at Jesus meets my greatest need, which is the forgiveness of sins. We saw this crazy story where a guy, a paralytic, was led down through the roof of where Jesus was preaching, and Jesus not only heals the guy, but he forgives the guy of his sins, being God. And so we see the religious leaders were going bonkers over this, and we get a full picture as we lean into these stories. And today, we're going to talk about another story, another moment with Jesus where he totally redefines something for the disciples, totally redefine something for us as we dive into it. I don't know about you, but uh, I have been surrounded by greatness before. Like, have you been surrounded by true, like real greatness before? I remember the moment that I realized that I was surrounded by this greatness. My brother was a junior in high school, and my brother back in high school was 6'4", 300 pounds, and played football. So he was the prototype uh, center. He was a prototype high school uh, offense lineman that was being recruited by different colleges. And I remember there was, uh, I don't know if it was the beginning of the season, he got called up from his coach and said, hey, Ohio State wants you to come and check out a game of theirs. And so we're like, well, yes, we will go do that. Free game, free food. We get to enjoy Ohio State. We're in, okay? Uh, we're not Ohio State fans, so that kind of, but we, we enjoyed it nonetheless. But we uh, went to this game, okay? And my brother uh, was there as a the recruit. Me and my dad got to go alongside of him. And we went up to the shoe where the Ohio State Buckeyes play. And we didn't go into the other entrances, like the main entrances everybody else 
went into. We went into this other entrance through a gate. They had to check our ID, the tickets, all that stuff. And they led us up these stairs that went into what I'd call the recruiting room. And you walk into this room, okay, and it starts off, you see like a ton of these mannequins dressed up in Ohio State gear and all the helmets. And you walk in and there's tables everywhere. It has Ohio State helmets on it. It's Uh, decor is crazy. There's stats on the wall. There's players of Hall of Famers on the wall. There's NFL players that came from Ohio State on the wall. There's Jumbotrons playing other games. There's a TV that's playing highlights from the previous season. It's nuts. And then there's like this big buffet line to the side of us. And I'm like a kid at Christmas. I am so excited about this experience because I'm a big football fan. I could barely eat my lunch because after lunch, 90 minutes before the game, we went down to the field to watch them warm up. So literally, three feet away from Joy Bosa, Ezekiel Elliott, Braxton Miller, Cardell Jones, all those guys I was standing face-to-face with as they're practicing, and they are bigger than you would ever even imagine. They were giant, but it was absolutely amazing. You're standing around, you're looking up at the 100,000-plus seats while you're down near the field. And I remember they took us after that to row six on the 50-yard line, so we watched the game in amazing seats, and afterwards we got to go stand on the field as they sung the alma mater, and at that point I'm like, this is amazing. This is greatness. Whether you're a Ohio State fan or not, you would agree with me that that would be an amazing experience. It was greatness through and through. They showed me who was great. They showed me why they were great, what they were great at. It was awesome, yet with how our world defines Greatness, it's very subjective. It's very subjective, right? Some people might walk into that and say, this isn't great. Michigan's better, right? Penn State's better. They're greater, right? It's very subjective and very per opinion. We have this term in our society, in our culture, the goat, the greatest of all time. Now, generally, the debate is based on NBA basketball. Who is the goat? LeBron or Michael, right? Who's better? My favorite is Bill Russell. He won 11 championships for the Boston Celtics, so that would be my goat. But it's based off opinion, who you think is better, what stats you consider to be important. You can do that with any category, fast food restaurants, you can do that with TV shows, movies, whatever it may be. And it's interesting because there's different debates and conversations that funnel through this. And we never line up similar to everybody. Greatness in our culture and how we talk about it never truly gets defined exactly. And today we're going to look at a passage where Jesus looks at his disciples and talks to his disciples and defines and demonstrates true greatness to them. So if you turn with me to Mark 10, we're going to be in that passage. It, it is a fascinating passage. I loved studying it this last two weeks. I've taught on this before. It is comical. It is relatable, and it is powerful, all within a few verses here. So Mark 10, it'll be on the screens if you don't have a Bible in front of you. Mark 10, verses 32 to 45 is where we're going to be at. Let me give you some context to where we're going. Basically, uh, Mark is kind of highlighting the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, and he gets to a point here in chapter 10 where they're traveling to Jerusalem. Okay, so what is going to happen in Jerusalem is Jesus is going to die. He's going to rise again. That's where that big Easter scene where we celebrate Easter is going to happen. And this is the journey to that point. They're on the road to Jerusalem. And he has this conversation that is absolutely fascinating with his 
disciples. And we're going to start in verse 33. Because before he gets to Jerusalem with his disciples, he tells them what's going to happen. He kind of prophesies about what's going to happen to himself. Verse 33 says this. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Now, we have to, my dad says this all the time, we have to read the Bible, we have to read scripture in color. Like, we cannot read it in black and white like it just happened. Like, we have to put ourselves, immerse ourselves into the story. And I challenge you with this story to do so. Because you read those first two verses, and it should kind of be shocking. Like, he tells this to his disciples. If I were to stand up here and tell you, hey, tomorrow I'm going to Norton, and they're going to kill me in Norton, and then I'm going to, on Wednesday, rise again back to life, you all would laugh at me, or you'd be like, why are we listening to this guy? I'm going to leave now. It'd be stunning, right? It'd be crazy. And if you're a disciple, right, you know Jesus is powerful. You know that he's the Savior. You know that he's awesome. He's king, whatever it may be. But yet, it's still a very bold claim. You got to read it in color. Like, you got to put yourself in the disciples' shoes. This is what they're hearing. But it's not the first time they've heard this. They've heard it two other times. And if you read Mark 8, In Mark 9, you see those two other times. It's interesting. Three times in a row, Jesus has this conversation. You think he's trying to get a point across to his disciples. It's very important to him. And it's fascinating looking at the responses. In Mark 8, we see Jesus explain this to the disciples, the same thing we just read. In verse 32, right afterwards, this is what it says. He spoke plainly about this, referring to Jesus, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So the first response is, Peter takes him aside, and I'm going to tell you why you shouldn't. Why are you doing this? This doesn't make sense. What is going on? So he rebukes him. He's like, no, 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 we're not having this, right? It goes on in Mark chapter 9. He says the same thing, and in verses 32 and 34 of chapter 9, this is what it says. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. And then verse 34, but they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Listen, I I love studying the Word of God because it's kind of comical, right? Three times Jesus states this. The first two is very underwhelming in the response, like very underwhelming. They are not only rebuking Jesus, their leader, but they are distracted by fighting about who is the greatest. Like their teacher, their leader just came to them and said, this is what's going to happen, and they're worried about who's great among themselves. Just picture that. Like, just to have a side conversation, that's what they're worried about. And in chapter 10, it doesn't get any better. In chapter 10, verse 35, we see the response after Jesus states what's going to happen in Jerusalem. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. That's their response. Now, you got to give some context to this. James and John are a part of kind of the inner crew of disciples. So you have the 12, and then James, John, and Peter are kind of the closest three to Jesus. We see this flesh out in different stories. One of the most famous ones is right before Jesus dies, he goes to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he invites James, John, and Peter closer into the garden to pray alongside of him, to be there with him, right? He has these experiences with these guys. So James and John probably thought, okay, like we can ask Jesus whatever we want. We're kind of a part of that inner crew. Like he must like us a lot. It's also interesting 
I like studying the Bible because, it's, like I said, it's comical in some parts. Matthew writes a parallel story to this. So the same story, but in the book of Matthew, Matthew writes uh, that their mother comes and asks Jesus to do whatever they want him to do. I think Mark had a little grace on these guys because it'd be pretty embarrassing if your mother were to do that, right? Like, your mother, if that was in the storybooks, like, well, my mother came and asked Jesus, like, to do whatever we ask of him, right? But either way, either way, comic or not, they miss it. They absolutely miss it. They miss what Jesus is telling them. Now, don't don't get me wrong. They probably understood that Jesus is all-powerful. They know he's Savior. He's come to rescue them. They know a lot of things about him. They've seen a lot of things happen, right? They are probably blown away by all that he can do, and they're like, well, why don't we just ask? It's interesting to read Jesus' response to them. In verse 36, this is what he says to them. What do you want me to do for you? I think Jesus is comical because he plays along, right? He plays along with them. What do you want me to do? Verse 37, this is what they say. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. James and John are looking for a position right next to Jesus. You got to understand, they're running into a Jerusalem that is being ruled by the Romans at the time. And in their minds, they see Jesus as the Savior that's come to save them, save the Jewish people from the Roman rule to set up this military and political kingdom. They see themselves as the chief advisors right next to Jesus, the the top executives to rule and to be seen, oh, those two must really know Jesus and must really be good friends of Jesus, and Jesus must trust them. They want to be sitting there when Jesus runs in to Jerusalem, sets up his kingdom, and bada-bing, bada-boom, there, right there, and they completely miss what Jesus is doing. They completely miss the kingdom that Jesus is setting up. And our first point today comes out of their ambitious request. Big point I would point out, and if you write notes, write it, I would write it down. My desire for glory is a narrow view of greatness. My desire for glory is a narrow view of greatness. What James and John wanted the most is to be seen in the glory of being next to Jesus. They wanted that position. They wanted others to applaud them. They they thought this military, political kingdom that Jesus was going to set up would give them a space so that other people see how close they are and how much they've accomplished and what they have done. And they totally miss sight of what Jesus is actually doing. And this desire for greatness actually leads to some undesirable results. If you write notes, I'd write this one down too. A narrow view leads to self-pride. Narrow view leads to self-pride. It becomes about what I've done and all about what I can do. It's this short-term fix, a position to accomplish kind of the here and now, what is getting me there. And it's interesting, as you look into the conversation, verse 38 fleshes this out for us. Jesus says this in verse 38, you don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? And basically what he's saying in that kind of rhythmic line there is he's saying, can you face the death I'm about to face? Can you really go to the cross? Can you really carry the weight of sin on your back and about what I'm about to do? Can you really face that? And it's interesting. If you read on the verse 39, this is their response. Two words, we can. We can, they answered. I don't know about you, but when I read this, that, that struck me so hard. I don't think I've read it like this before, but the the simplicity 
of that response that so rings pride. Yep, if you can do it, we can do it. Yep, I bet we could. Don't you know us, Jesus? Look at all we've accomplished. You've been with us. We're a tight-knit group. Like, we definitely can do that. They have no idea what Jesus is about to face. And yet the pride and who they are and what they've accomplished and how close we are to Jesus, come on, Jesus, we can do that. We can face the death you're about to face. Pride rings through that statement. C.S. Lewis writes a quote. This is uh, what he says. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. C.S. Lewis uh, words it well. It's based off of competition often. We know that. That, that We see that in the NBA, NFL, MLB, all that stuff, right? I love sports, but when you get to competitive nature, the pride comes out of I'm better than him. I'm better than her. Don't you see what I've accomplished on the field? Don't you see how I've uh, been better than them in, in my statistics, whatever it may be, right? We lift the bar, and that's where pride comes from because I look down on others. And James and John because of this pride, have a narrow view of what greatness actually is, and we can all face that. I'm a guy that struggles with this very, very, very deeply, and I think all guys uh, struggle with this very often, but but we'll take this and we'll, we'll compare to other people. We'll line up our accomplishments. Right? All people do that. We'll line up what we've done compared to what they've done so that I can look better. Like, we'll set up competitions so that they know that I'm better than them at whatever we're doing, right? Competitions are awesome. I love competing. I love playing sports and that, but we make it something that's basing our identity on what we accomplish. I'll bring up all of my accomplishments, my awards, what I did when I was a kid in high school, whatever it may be, so that others feel like I'm better than them. Oh, look what I did. Look what I've accomplished, right? We'll belittle others. We'll belittle others so that they know I'm better than them, right? It fleshes out in a lot of different ways. It can even flesh out in the church, not just in social status. It can flesh out in the church. We can be so self-right. Oh, look how good I am. Oh, those sinners, they're messes. Like, man, I can't even believe. And we totally lose sight of the mission of what Jesus came to do because we're so stuck into our own pride and, man, I've said yes to Jesus and I'm all good and I live a good life. And this fleshes out. We see James and John, they are deeply, deeply in that in their response to Jesus. Our pursuit of greatness leads to a deadly pride in ourselves. And I face this more than anybody. Like, I understand this is something that rings true in human nature, but that's not the only thing. I'd write this down. A narrow view leads to self-exalting. A narrow view leads to self-exalting. You'll see all these kind of connect. It is exalting oneself to a position above others. And Jesus continues in these verses, and we see in verse 39, he says this, said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. Basically, yep, you guys are going to go through what I'm going to go through. You'll probably die a similar death, and, and you'll be martyrs, and you'll experience this. Verse 40, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Like the disciples came in assuming, like, if we state this and we tell Jesus, this is what we're going to do and this is where we're going to sit, we have it. Bada bing, bada boom, bam, we're there. And Jesus is like, no, 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 that's not how it works. It's prepared for someone. 
It's not like you can ask, you just like say, boom, and it's there, right? They had a totally misconceived idea of what greatness and putting yourself in glory was all about. Jesus like, no, no, that's not how it works. And yet we can self-exalt ourselves all the time. I struggle with this at work. Like any job that, that I've had, I'm like, well, I probably should be in that position. Don't you see how hard I work? Don't you see what I've accomplished? Don't you see what I've done? It all rings out of that pride. And so I just want to automatically get to that position. I've got to climb that ladder because the guy there, I don't know. We can self-exalt ourselves to different positions in life because I have done this or I have done that or don't you see my resume? Don't you see what I've done over here? James and John, they're, they're trying to pursue this glory by telling Jesus, no, this is where we should be. Don't you know? Goes on. The last thing in this I would, I would write down is a narrow view leads to selfishness. Usually, I would say all the time, the pursuit of greatness is all about me, 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 me. It's all about me. What I want when I want it so I can get to the top. It's interesting as you read through the passage, verse 41 says this, when the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Heck yes, I would too. Like James and John pulls Jesus aside and the other 10 don't even get a shot at getting their, their, their statements out or their resumes out, or their accomplishments out. I would come up with a plan to hurt James or John so I could have the next bout, right? It's like, of course they're indignant. Of course they are angry because James and John totally, totally disregard their relationship with the other disciples. They could care less about the other 10. Like, who cares about them? As long as we get our say, as long as we get in, like, as long as Jesus sees us and our glory is in there, then we will be fine. But what's interesting is they also disregard Jesus. If you go back to the beginning of these passages, you see Jesus flesh out what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem, and they don't even care. They don't even show concern. All they care about is themselves and getting what they want. When my pursuit of glory so that everybody sees how great I am fleshes out my life, it totally disregards the relationships that I have with other people, disposes of them. I could care less about my family. I could care less about my coworkers. I could care less about my neighbors, my friends, so that I can get the applause, so I can get the uh, approval of others. I can be seen as great. The question is, my desire to build my own glory or invest in my family? My desire to build my own glory in my neighborhood so everybody sees how great I am or develop friendships with my neighbors. My desire to build my own glory at work or influence those around me. This narrow view of greatness that the disciples ran into, that we all struggle with because we're sinful humans, leads to a pride, self-exaltation, and selfishness. But it's interesting, not only, like I said before, social status, but this fleshes out in church life too. I struggled with this deeply, deeply in college. Like, I thought I was hot stuff because I followed Jesus and I did all the right things, and yet at the same time, I had secret sins and I was a hypocrite. And I wasn't living out the mission because I was so bent on self-righteousness. I was so bent on, look at me and how great I am. I go to church on Sunday, look at me. I read the Bible on a daily basis, and yet I never understood what greatness was. I never understood what the mission of Jesus was. And it's interesting, as all this fleshes out, it's like, that's a lot to take in. Those first few verses, a lot to take in. What fleshes out is Jesus' response, and in three verses, 
He not only defines greatness, but he demonstrates true greatness. And it is powerful, powerful, powerful. Verse 42, if you want to turn there. Jesus called them together, it says. Now, being Father's Day, I just imagine Jesus as the dad saying, okay, guys, let's bring this in, boys. Like, as siblings, like, are fighting, he's like, come on, boys, let's, let's have a conversation about this, okay? He said this, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. He's most likely, I would assume, uh, referring to what's happening in Jerusalem. The Romans are ruling. That's what they see. That's what they understand. So they see this authority, this dominance. That's how you achieve greatness. You build your kingdom here. People follow you. You rule over them. You, you tell them what to do. Verse 43 says this, not so with you, emphatically, I bet. Not so with you, 12. That's not how it's going to work. That's not what's going to happen in my house. That's not what's going to happen in my kingdom. It goes on, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Jesus completely flips the idea of greatness on its head and redefines it totally. And this is the next big point that I would state. The definition of true greatness starts with who I am, not what I do. The definition of true greatness starts with who I am, not what I do. What Jesus does is it makes it, he makes it about who we are, our identity, not the accomplishments that we achieve. He completely redefines what the disciples thought greatness was. Now, if you think like I do, okay, this is, I've had to hop over this hurdle because when I hear Jesus state that, this is what I think. Sweet. So now all I have to do is serve and then people will see me as great. If I go to church often and I serve often at church and serve over here, then I'll get the applause and people will see me as great. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. You don't serve so that you get this worldly greatness. You get the applause and people are amazed by you. Rather, you become a servant. You become a slave to all. It's an identity you build onto yourself. And it's mind-boggling to us because a lot of times we define greatness by what we do. The goat, for example. We have these conversations based off the stats, the championships, what the guys did on the floor. Not based on their character, not based on who they are, based on their abilities, based on what they've done there. We base our identity often on what we do. But Jesus redefines it, and he redefines it as servant and slave. And what's interesting, and I think we have a, I know we have a misconceived idea of what being a slave and servant means because of historical things that happened and rough situations that happened in the past that kind of misconceived what a slave and servant were back in Jesus's time era. And the Greek word for slave and servant means this, one who gives himself up to another's will, devoted to another, disregard own interest. Completely countercultural. Completely countercultural. That's what a slave and servant of that time era would have been. Someone that didn't care anything about themselves, that was willing to serve their master, willing to run after someone else's will and disregard their own needs and wants so that that person has what they need. C.S. Lewis states it like this in Mere Christianity. If we were to meet a truly humble person, Lewis says, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not always be telling us they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying they are a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. I'm not going to dive deep into that, but that is a fascinating point that C.S. Lewis makes there. 
The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself. C.S. Lewis does a great job at defining what a servant or slave looks like. Right? It is not concerned with ourselves, myself, but looking to others' needs. How can I help others, thinking of myself less? When we start to understand our identity as this, we can start to strive for greatness, not from greatness. We can start to walk into a room and think about what do others need instead of what do others think of me? We start looking at our identity, we start to think of ourselves less, we start to think of others more, putting others more. When I walk into the home at the end of a work day, it's not how can they pamper me and how can they make sure that I'm rested and relaxed, but what does my family need from me? When I walk into work in the morning, it's not what do I need and how, how can I get it and how can I get others to benefit me, but how can I serve my coworkers? It's that striving from greatness, not for greatness. A servant is only concerned with how to serve others. A servant is an identity to embrace, not just an achievement to accomplish. And that fleshes out in a passage, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, and this is what he says, okay? It's powerful stuff. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul tells us, take the mindset of Jesus. That, that's why Jesus redefined this greatness conversation. It's a mind shift or a mindset shift. It's totally different than what we're told and what we come in this earth believing and pursuing. It changes everything, and we see that Jesus, who is God, did not use his godness to his advantage. Rather, he loved us so much that he put on the identity of a servant. That he served while he was on this earth. He was a servant on this earth. He loved other people. He ran into messes. He ran into situations that no one else would run into so that he could fulfill the mission by going to the cross. His servanthood didn't end at the cross. It was the ultimate picture at the cross. That is how much he loves us. That's how much he gave to us. That's how much he served us, that he would spend his life, die for us, for our sins. When you truly are a servant, being great is a byproduct. It's a byproduct. Right? It's, not, it's not something that we are like, oh, I hope I get the applause. It's just something that fleshes out because Jesus is the greatest. He showed us what it means to be great. Verse 45 goes on, and this is, we could spend a whole sermon on this verse, honestly. It is power-packed, but we're going to spend a little bit of time. Uh, what Jesus' kind of final words to them, okay, gives them the demonstrative picture of what he has done. Verse 45, he says this, For even the Son of Man, that's Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus demonstrated to us what greatness truly looks like. The greatest became the least, the king became the servant, the master became the slave. 
the grand paradox, as some would say it, the grandest of paradox that God himself would come down in human flesh and live this life. It's interesting in chapter 10, the rest of chapter 10, we see that Jesus runs into a blind man and heals him. Like immediately after he has this conversation, he is in humility and servanthood serving someone else and loving someone else. And then in chapter 11, we see humility exemplified. He run, or goes into Jerusalem with his disciples and he asks for a donkey instead of a horse. If you rode a horse into Jerusalem, everybody would see you amazing. Oh my gosh, that guy must be great. Instead, he asked for a donkey. He immediately goes back. It is an identity he's built on that he is running every bit of his life, even to the point of the cross living. It's interesting. I uh, remember when I was a kid, uh, spanking was instituted in my house. I don't know how many of you got spanked or did spank your kids, but it was a thing in my house uh, when I was a young kid. And so I remember there was one point, uh, I don't know, I was eight or nine or something like that, you know, young enough still to get spankings, but old enough to remember uh, the story. I did something not so good, obviously, because my dad came home and you knew it was rough when mom said, just wait till your dad got home. I'm like, oh no, this is bad. Uh, got home, my mom told him what happened. I forget what happens. I blanked it out of my memory for probably good reason. And I remember he looked at me and said, okay, why don't you head to your room? Uh, and you just know when your parent says, head to your room, it's just bad news. And they say that, I think they're like, I don't know if it's comical for them, but you sit there and you just sit there in silence and think, what is going to happen, right? What is going to happen? It's almost more torturous the before time than the actual spanking. But my dad comes into the room and he has the traditional uh, choice of a wooden spoon, okay? So I don't know how many of you got the wooden spoon to the behind, but that was my dad's choice. And he comes in and he talks to me for you know a little bit. Obviously, what I've done, the discipline I deserve, and uh, what's going to happen, and then how to kind of uh, move forward with this. And I remember thinking, we could talk longer if you wanted to, because I don't want to get to the spanking part, right? So, and, you know, you try to draw out, just like any good child would, you just kind of draw it out. But it came to the point where he said, okay, it's time for your spanking. And I remember, just like I usually would if I got in trouble, you kind of turn around and you bend over slightly so that he can spank you. I remember this time it was different. I, I bent over and he said, wait a second. He said, why don't you turn back around? It's like, okay, this is different. A little scary, unique. And he said, this time it's, it's going to be different. This time, instead of me spanking you, you're going to spank me. I was like, whoa, what is happening to my dad? This is crazy, right? This doesn't make sense. And so I start shaking a little bit because that's just a nerve-wracking feeling. He hands me the spoon and he goes to bend forward and says, okay, you can commence with the spanking. I'm like, okay. So like I'm almost in tears at this point and I go and I barely tap him and he's like harder. I'm like, oh my word, what is happening? And so I start to like full on cry and I try it again and he's like harder. Like I know and I break down. I absolutely break down. It was like the craziest thing. But in that moment of that didn't make sense in the moment, but after the moment, I realized what he was doing. He was showing me a picture of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus. He was showing me a picture of what Jesus did for me on the cross in such a simple way, in such a powerful way at the same time. He said, this is what Jesus has done for you. The, the, Jesus has handed you the wooden spoon. That death that you were supposed to die for your sins, that death that you were supposed to take the cross for, 
I'm going to take for you. And in that moment, I learned an extremely important lesson. I learned an extremely important lesson that, that my dad showed me that he bent down and said, I'm going to be a servant. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to take your punishment. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. Jesus is not just another good guy, another random guy that started this random movement. No, he's God, came down in human flesh. He said, I'm going to put on the identity as a servant. I'm not going to live this life pursuing my own glory and making everybody see who I am and making everybody see how great I am. Rather, I'm going to be a servant so that others see why I came. And the mission of why I came is to go to the cross so I could die for each and every single one of you so that you could have a relationship with God. That's why he came. That's why he was a servant. His servanthood didn't end before the cross. It was the ultimate picture at the cross. So where does that leave us? Where, where do we go from here, right? We see this glory that is pursued not only in the world, but it can be pursued in this churchy sense also. We see this redefinition. The demonstration shows us this. I choose servanthood because Jesus served me. I choose servanthood because Jesus served me. It is the ultimate picture of the gospel. It's the ultimate picture of the gospel. This is what the good news of Jesus is about. This is the only way that you can secure eternal life is by saying yes to Jesus and having meaning and purpose in this life. That's the only way is by saying yes to Jesus. I heard a, a pastor once explain it like this, that the gospel we often associate with kind of like a diving board into Christianity. The gospel is the diving board, right? We hop on the diving board, we jump in, and then we're floating in this Christianity world, and we're, we're doing our thing. And he says, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. The gospel is the swimming pool. The gospel is the swimming pool, and we just keep diving deeper into the good news of Jesus and what he's done for us in the life of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus, so we understand who he is, get a complete picture of what he is all about. And for some of us this morning, we are on the outside of the fence, of the pool. We're looking in. This Jesus thing maybe doesn't make sense. And we see people running around and it looks like they're having a good time and it looks kind of scary and who knows what it's all about. And you're currently just standing on the fence looking into what's happening in the pool. My challenge for you today is to see God, the creator who created you and me, who loves us so, so much, decided that he loved us so much and had so much mercy and grace on us that he would come down as a human to live this life. And you know this life is not perfect. It's not always great. It's not always wonderful. And it's full of sin. And he decided to come down, live a perfect life, and he decided to go to the cross, the mission of why I came. I was a servant so I could go to the cross, die for each and every one of you, rise again so that you could have life eternally with me in heaven and have life to the full on earth. For some of you, Maybe that step is opening the fence, stepping onto the deck. Maybe for others of you, it's jumping into the pool today, saying yes to Jesus. I want to be a part of that because I know that my God loves me so much that he would risk everything, come down to be a human, to die for me. For others of us, we've said yes to Jesus. We've done this life. We, we know what it's all about. And yet the gospel is not the swimming pool. So what we've done is we just kind of hopped out onto the edge and we're kicking our feet into the water. 
And we're just kind of kicking there, and we're cool with just kind of like coming Sundays, engaging in that, and we're cool with like doing this and that church-wise, and yet we're not fully immersed in who Jesus is and what he's about in the gospel, the good news of Jesus. We kind of forgot that. That was the diving board, right? We're just in this Christianity. We're trying to do good. My challenge for you is this, to just immerse yourself immerse yourself. For some of us, that might mean getting into the Bible. There are specific passages that highlight the good news of Jesus and tell us all about what he's done. For others of us, that is just looking at what Jesus did, being reminded of the gospel every day, being motivated to be a servant to others. I want to immerse myself so much that my life is changing so drastically. I see what Jesus did for me, and I'm motivated to go to my neighbor and serve him, even though he's an atheist. I'm going to go to my crazy uncle that absolutely hates church. I'm going to be a servant to him. I'm going to be a servant to the coworkers that do not agree with me on everything. I decide to be a servant. John MacArthur says this in one of his books, The cost of true greatness is humble, selfless, sacrificial service. The Christian who desires to be great and first in the kingdom is the one who is willing to serve in the hard place, the uncomfortable place, the lonely place, the demanding place, the place where he is not appreciated and may even be persecuted. Listen, being a servant is not easy, and I wake up daily fighting the battle of hating it. It's not our human nature to totally disregard ourselves and pursue being a servant to others. It's hard. I, I was at summer camp this week, and I was prideful and selfish. I had an awful first step to the week, and I was like, Joel, what are you doing? You're the leader here. You're supposed to lead all these kids. And, and everything inside of me didn't want to. And where we need to run back to is the good news of Jesus, the gospel, being reminded of that every day of why Jesus came. It starts there. And then lastly, and then we'll wrap up, I choose servanthood because Jesus had the mission in mind. Jesus had the mission in mind. A narrow view of greatness serves myself and totally disregards the mission. Totally disregards the mission because the mission has a long view in mind. The mission is willing to stick it out, and the mission is for others. I have a five-month-old son, um, and we are going through sleep training right now with him. I don't know if any of you parents, I see some smirks, right? Yes, you know sleep training. And so basically, I just follow my wife, and she tells me what to do. And so she said, this is a good idea. And I said, okay. And so she basically, this is what it is. She told me this. That sleep training is getting them from being like rocked, fed to sleep, to being able to put them in the crib or bed uh, by themselves and them falling asleep while they're awake, go to sleep on their own. Like they don't need any help. And so we're going through this process and the first night was awful. He was sleeping eight to nine hours a night and it went down to like waking up every two hours. It was terrible. And so I looked at my wife, I'm like, this is, this is awful. This is terrible. Why are we doing this? This doesn't make sense. It is absolutely ridiculous. Now, we've progressed through it. It's gotten slightly better, but not great. But here's the thing. In that mission of getting my son to be able to sleep on his own, everything inside of me does not want to do it. Because I will lack sleep. I will, it will be hard. We'll have to hear him cry it out at some point. We'll have to hear him go through the struggle. It is painful to me. I would rather just rock him to sleep, get him to that point, put him down, do what we've done, and have him sleep. Yet it does not have the mission in mind. When Jesus came to be a servant, he had the mission completely in mind. 
that he wasn't here just to get the, the quick fix of glory and greatness so everybody could see him and, oh, look at how godly he is. And look, oh my gosh, he rather decided to do the nitty-gritty thing of being a servant so that he could go to the cross and the mission is to save all of us from our sins. Jesus' serving doesn't make sense till you understand his mission and passion. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 says this, I'll skip down to the the second part of one. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured the cross, scorned its shame. He went to the mission. He, He finished the mission so that all of us could say yes to him and have a relationship with God. He absolutely redefines Greatness. Now, here's the thing. I talk to middle school and high schoolers all the time, and I think adults are in the same boat, that the day-to-day Christian walk is painfully hard. It is painfully hard. I talk to middle schoolers and high schoolers all the time, and what happens is we go to a conference or a camp, and they're all, uh, I would say they get the Jesus juice, and they're all hyped up, right? That's just my lingo, Jesus juice. They get hyped up, and they're excited about Jesus, and they're excited about what God's doing in their life, and, and they go back home that next week, and it just, it tanks. And they're like, what in the world is going on? Why is this happening? I've, I have students in my office. They're like, how do I defeat this? How do I, what do I do with this? And I would say this, that when you have the mission in mind, it's going to be gritty, You're going to have to grind it out. It is not going to be easy, but yet it helps you pursue being a servant. When you look at the end and say, it's not about me, but it's about my neighbor coming to say yes to Jesus. It's about my friend coming to say yes to Jesus. It's about my family member coming to say yes to Jesus. That is the mission, and it may not happen for 40 years. It may not happen for four years. It may not happen until they're on their deathbed. And yet each and every day you're like, I'm going to be a servant not because I enjoy it all the time, not because it's beneficial to me, but it's beneficial to others. It starts with being reminded of the gospel and then being reminded of the mission of why Jesus came here. That's what it means to be a servant. That's, that's where Jesus absolutely redefines it and demonstrates it to us. Why don't we pray?